0: Matthew 16, um, we're going to read verses 13 to 17. I told our group Wednesday night uh, we're going over a study of how to study the Bible. Uh, we're going to spend a few weeks on that on Wednesday if you were not here. I uh, don't know where you were, but you need to be here this Wednesday, okay? <laughs> you need to come. Um, but I kind of shared with them that normally on a normal Sunday, like last week was an exception, we preached through two chapters, not two chapters, two paragraphs last week. Normally we preach a paragraph at a time. And I kind of told them Wednesday night, this week will be unusual. We're not preaching an entire paragraph, uh, though it's only eight verses. The first five verses that we're getting ready to read are plenty. And then you say, oh, three next week, so it should be really, really short. Well, then when you see what's in the next three, you'll be, oh, how many points are there in those three verses? I don't know yet. I haven't studied it, so we'll see. Uh, there'll be much to come in that, but these are tied. This is one paragraph I'm only going to read the first five verses, okay? So here we go. So here's the setting. You ready? Got our imaginary Sea of Galilee. We're still spending a lot of time there. So the Lord previously had been down over at 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee into Capolis, and there he fed 10,000, 15,000 people, miraculously. Then he moves over to the western side probably around 9 o'clock, and now he's back in Jewish territory in Nazareth, has an encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they get back on the lake and they head to the northern point of the Sea of Galilee. So they're up here at Bethsaida. And we're getting ready to find that they're gonna end up 25 miles north, back up into predominantly Gentile region. Let me just kind of throw this out. I don't know specifics, I haven't studied it, but weeks and months are going by. It's getting later in the year by this time. I know we've been a while getting up to chapter 16 But just remember, chapter 21 is the triumphal entry, and we're going to spend eight chapters on the last week of the Lord's life. So we're getting there. We're we're down in the last few months is where we're at. And so it's time to take inventory. So we have that mindset. It's time to do some assessment. They've pulled away again by themselves. It's the Lord and His disciples, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi. So again, he's going 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. In private time, we've kind of been hinting the last few months of his ministry is going to be much less public, barely every now and then public, much more private. So he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's his favorite title that he uses of himself. Hey, fellas. What's the word on the street? What's the word in the crowds? Who do they say that the Son of Man is? And they said, notice they, multiple people giving input. They said, some say John the Baptist. Who do people say that I am? I hear John the Baptist a lot. A lot of people think you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. So you can kind of tell we're getting a skinny version of this conversation. It's... Don't make it too rigid. This is exactly what happened, but there's going to be, they're chiming in, and yep, this is the gist. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some think you're Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's an important question for you. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter. So they've all replied, Simon Peter answers this one. Simon Peter replied, "You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Jesus answered him, "Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Son of John. You are blessed." Was he so blessed?" Verse 17, "For flesh and blood." has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Notice verse 13. Actually, let's go ahead and notice our first point. We'll notice three things again. The text does lend to break. I know I have a pattern that I rarely break. Probably once a month I'll have four points of something. Every now and then I'll have two points. I do like three. Maybe my mind is bent toward finding three. I don't know, subconsciously. Notice first of three things in our text this morning. Verse 13 and 14. There's public confusion about Jesus. What's the word on the streets? Verse 13. First of all, let's just quickly get the background. When, so they're leaving the Sea of Galilee. Again, 25 miles north. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, his disciples are with him. He comes in. But this is a weird-sounding Caesarea. This is Caesarea Philippi. What is this? So, again, Gentile, predominantly Gentile territory. This is a city that's named after two people. It had been named after Caesar, but there's another Caesarea It's Caesarea Maritime down on the Mediterranean coast. This is not on the Mediterranean coast. This is north of that. And so Herod the Great had done some things and built a temple to Caesar. And so it's named Caesarea. But his son, after Herod the Great's death, his son Philip the Tetrarch, is now the Roman ruler over this area. And so Philip enlarged Caesarea because he's the one primarily responsible for enlarging this city. He attaches his name No doubt for a little selfish pride, but also to distinguish it from the other Caesarea, and this one's called Caesarea Philippi. Caesar's name, my name, Caesarea Philippi. And again, this section of geography was particularly known for its Baal worship back in the Old Testament. So lots of idolatry, and this is unique, in one of the most predominantly idolatrous places in the world is where the Lord draws out a confession of exactly who He is. So, notice his question now. Uh, By the way, this is in the shadow of Mount Hermon. So, Mount Hermon is right in the background. I won't go into all the things that I read. Just know that Mount Hermon is larger than any of the mountains we have on the east side of the Mississippi River. uh, The largest mountain we have on this side is about 6,700 square feet, Mount Mitchell, North Carolina. Mount Hermon rises another 27 feet, 2,700 feet above that, 9,232. So it has snow on the top of it lots, lots of the time. I've never been there, but some of you have actually been there and seen Mount Hermon, and you've been to Caesarea Philippi. So notice his question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? I'm not going to develop this because I, I, I feel obligated to talk about it, but I'm going to do it briefly because we've hit it before. Son of man is Jesus' favorite self-designation. He is clearly drawing back from the book of Daniel where this one who's the son of man, so that tells us he has humanity, but there's also more than just his humanity. And this Son of Man back in Daniel's prophecy comes to the Ancient of Days. So we know the Ancient of Days represents God the Father. And the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man this kingdom. And so Jesus takes this title on himself. And so now he's asking his disciples, who do people say? Who do the crowds say? The average person on the street, the average person that comes to our gatherings, what do they think of me? Who do they say that I, the Son of Man, am? And he gets three or four responses. And if you'll look at verse 14... John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, and the other of the prophets. So a quick question. Don't answer out loud. i just have you answer in your mind. They're, the average word on the street is that you're a prophet. Was Jesus a prophet? Yes. He's absolutely a prophet. He has received and carries the, the special revelation of God, the new revelation of God. He proclaims and preaches the revelation of God. He's bringing God's message to mankind. He is certainly a prophet. But guys, here's the problem. The average person on the street thinks no more highly of Jesus than they do the other prophets. And so we have these names. So here's the problem. We know we have this character, John the Baptist, who's mentioned, who's connected to the Old Testament but also kicks off the New Testament, so he's extremely unique. And in their mind, Jesus is equal to one of them. That's a problem. Nothing against these fellows because they're all greater than me. These are great men as far as men go. But John the Baptist, Jesus has said of him, none of them in the Old Testament. He doesn't say John is the greatest. He just says none of them are greater than John. John says the gap between him and Jesus is so wide, he is not even worthy to stoop down and unloose the latchet on his sandals. Literally, John is saying the gap between me and Jesus is so wide, it would be an absolute honor to be like a servant and a slave just to get to take his shoes off. Oh, that would be awesome. And these people are putting Jesus in the same category with all these other prophets. He is a prophet, but he's a lot more than a prophet. So there's confusion among the public about Jesus. Let's just touch on these briefly. If you're taking notes, we've heard this first one before, haven't we? Haven't we heard this already? Hey, some people think you're John the Baptist. Hey, fellas, who did people say that I, the Son of Man, is? Some people think you're John the Baptist. Yeah, I hear that a lot, too. That seems to be kind of one of the main ones. Why would people think that? We've heard this already from Herod Antipas. Herod is the one who's put John the Baptist to death. He's had him executed, and Herod had this belief that Jesus has come, is is John the Baptist come back to life with these new powers. John didn't apparently have miraculous powers while on earth. He had this message, and now Jesus. So again, in people's mind, this to me is really not a good stance because If you were at the baptism of Jesus, I didn't realize a lot of people weren't, but you would know they're definitely two different people. But if you think about it, in their defense, hang with me, after the baptism of Jesus, Jesus goes off to the wilderness to be tempted, and then he goes off into his ministry up north. Right around that time, shortly after, John gets arrested by Herod Antipas. And one of the reasons Jesus heads north is because of John's arrest and so while he's in prison kind of out of the public view Jesus is just kind of starting his ministry and coming on the scene and then Herod has John executed and lo and behold apparently right around that time Jesus has become famous and Herod just assumes Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead full of new power so that seems to be the main reason why that group of people would think that but can I add one more y'all help me Their message was the same. If we were to bear their message down, boil it down to one word, John the Baptist's main message and Jesus' main message, one word, what is it? Repent. Oh, he's just John the Baptist. We've heard this message. And his message is repent. Have such a deep change of mind about yourself. John and Jesus are both, hey, Jews, you're not good enough to go to heaven Your sin is worse than you think. Your sins have separated you from God. You're in great danger. You must repent of your sin. You must repent of your attitude about yourself. You better turn to the Savior. So Jesus and John have very similar messages. They think he's John the Baptist. Notice next, Elijah. So Elijah, my understanding, I'd read this. I personally, I I understand it. So I'm going to hit these quickly. Apparently, among the Jews at this time period, the average person would have looked at all the Old Testament prophets and they would have said Elijah was the greatest. And Now, I've got to think they would also include Moses. So, who are the greatest of the prophets. The average person don't know what Jesus just said about John, so we'll have set that separate. John's of their time. As they're looking back to the Old Testament, apparently word on the street is that there's Elijah and, of course, Moses, and those are the greatest. And so these people think we're complimenting this person. We think he's Elijah. Remember, Elijah never died. Elijah was transported right on into heaven, and he's back. Hold your spot here, chapter 16. Go back to the last book of the Old Testament. You're in the first book of the New Testament. Go back to Malachi. It's just several pages back. Go to Malachi chapter 4, and notice what the text says there. You'll see verse 5 on the screen. Why would these people think that Jesus is Elijah. Malachi chapter 4. Jesus said, not Jesus, Malachi prophecy from the Lord writes, Behold, so here's what they're left with. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this is a promise. By the way, this will happen. Remember, Jesus already talked about this in the book of Matthew. He's hinted, in essence, John the Baptist has come in the spirit of Elijah, and if the Jewish nation had accepted Jesus' kingship and messiahship, had they accepted John's message, then John would have been the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah, but we know that they reject it. And so now we still hold that Elijah officially has not himself yet returned. But these people in Jesus' day, they think, and they think it's a big compliment, we're on the verge of something great. He's Elijah. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. Look at verse 5 again. I Behold, God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. If you have your Bible open, you have an advantage because if you look back at verse 1, you'll see what is this great and awesome day of the Lord. Behold, the day is... For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So the, the wicked and the evildoers are going to be judged by fire. That's the great, notable, final day of the Lord. But verse 2 gives the positive side. But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And I kind of pictured a calf who's been in a stall. Finally, the gate opens and off he just goes like a deer, like a little calf. Woo-hoo! That's going to be the, the people who have a fear of God when the great day of the Lord comes. Before that, Elijah returns. And Elijah is this also this forerunner of the Christ. So, We know John the Baptist was the original forerunner of the first phase of Christ's coming. And Elijah will be another forerunner for the second phase of Christ's coming to the earth. Back to Matthew 16. So what's this with Jeremiah? A couple of thoughts here. And again, I'll be brief. Why would they think? I didn't know this. What I'm about to say is not in the Bible, so don't run with this. It's not in the inspired Word of God, but there were Jewish books at that time that were telling them, there were some prophecies, uninspired Jewish books, that were telling them that Jeremiah the prophet is also going to return before the Messiah comes. So that's at play, and some people are thinking, oh, I think he's Elijah. Well, I think he's Jeremiah because that was their tradition that was growing. But could I throw this out? Remember, Jeremiah was known as the what prophet. The weeping prophet. So he has this burden for Judah and Israel. And his message is always the negative message. They're going into captivity. Well, we're going to get out any old day now. And Jeremiah says, no, you're not. We're really going to get a good hard spanking from the Lord because of our idolatry. This is not going to be a quick fix. Well, we don't like your message. Well, it's the one from God. So he can't help it. He gets a negative message from God, but Jeremiah is faithful to declare it. And it comes with consequences. It puts him at odds with the Jewish leaders. And so I think one of the things that's happening here with Jesus is Jesus' style of preaching is one in which he's preaching doom. Even for people in Israel. And the Jewish leaders don't like this message. No, we're the, we're the children of Abraham. That's not going to happen. All of us have the blessing. All of us are waiting for this great deliverer to come. Don't you say that. And Jesus is saying, no, most of the people in Israel are in huge trouble. He preaches doom. And so apparently the average person here is like, you're like Jeremiah. You don't pull any punches. Your message creates hostility between you and the Jewish leaders. And it did. The takeaway from this first point and Jesus' question and their answers in verse 14 is that there's this huge excitement in the land. These people know they're living in unprecedented times. They just don't realize how unprecedented. They think they're on the verge of something big like any time now the Christ is going to show up, but they don't realize they were already in the unprecedented times. Number two, and this is the heart of today's message, verse 15 and 16. Would you notice Peter's great confession Peter's great confession look again if you would verse 15 he said to them but who do you say that I am who do you guys say that I am because the the way I'm going to look at it is we're getting down to the end of the Lord's ministry on earth I'm not going to call this the final exam because I think the final exam is a few months after this can we call it the midterm here's the midterm Let's see how we're doing. What you guys understanding? That's what they think. Are y'all different than the crowd? Do you have a different belief system? What do you believe? Can I invite you this morning, please, sp- pay special attention to this section? Your eternity, your entire eternity depends on how you would answer this question that Jesus asked. Who do you? There is this man named Jesus of Nazareth, and he asked this group of people, who do you say that I am? So if he were here with us today and he were to say, like, put you on a lie detector in your heart of hearts, who do you say that Jesus of Nazareth, this Jewish man Jesus, who do you say that he is? Well, the Lord knows how you would answer that and you will be evaluated on that one day. You will individually, you will individually stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he will know what your true core heart's view of him was. So you should pay attention. And adjust your mindset if it's not equal to the scriptures in this passage. Look at verse 16. But Peter replied, Before I read that, can I just give you guys, y'all know that I do this, you have to forgive me. And if I end up harming your view of the scriptures, I truly apologize. I read between the lines, I try to put myself in the text. I try not to harm the text. I try to make sure I don't do that. But I try because I have time to do this. And I try to, this is a narrative. And this really did happen. And so I'm trying to picture this. I don't know how you vision these ancient times. But in my mind, bless my heart, it is color. It's lots of browns. I don't know why, I picture this district, lots of brown, not a whole lot of grass, especially certain parts of the year, brown clothing and robes and all those things, maybe a touch of duller type reds, but I put myself in the scene. Here's what I know from Mark and Luke. I'm not reading there today, but here's what I know. This is very closely connected to a time of Jesus praying. So that tells me part of why he wanted to get away. He's praying privately even more than before. And he's spending time privately with his disciples. Who do people say that I am? They hear all these answers. But who do you say that I am? In my mind, maybe they're on the move. Maybe they're on the move. But I'm just picturing they're eating a meal. And they're just sitting around a campfire. Very informal. It's just the Lord and his disciples. What's the word on the street, guys? What do people say that I am? Who do they say that I am? Oh, some this, some that, some that. Who do you say that I am? In my mind, when that is asked, I'm picturing, again, they're eating, and I almost imagine Peter mid-bite. You know? Or... They're talking, talking, talking. And who do you say that I am? And he swallows just enough time. Nobody's answered. Peter's always willing to answer. Peter's always willing to share his opinion. I think he does it in such a matter-of-fact way. If you would picture that scene, Who do you say that I am? You? You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Hey, guys, what do people say? Who do people say that I am? Some people think you're John the Baptist. Yep, I hear that a lot. Some people think you're Elijah. Yes, they think you're the forerunner. That's the word on the street. Some think you're Jeremiah. Some think you're this or that or the other. Who do you guys say that I am? You're the Christ. The son of the living God. And then Jesus just looks at him admirably. And he loves him. Notice verse 16 quickly. Let's look at its two main parts. I'm not going to spend long on it, but I don't want to assume. I was almost going to get up and just assume that we know this. And then the longer I preach, the more I realize, Jeff, don't make assumptions. Peter, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of Of the living God. And this is referred to by many people as the great confession. This is the great confession. So what is the great confession? Can I just say this again? Taking nothing for granted. Can we start right here? Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jeff Bartlett. Mike Sturgill. Brandon Chambers. Jesus Christ. So how are the Christs doing these days? Oh, they're doing great. Now, we're chuckling, but... Someone is listening right now going, it's not? Oh, I thought that was his last name. We use it now. The New Testament uses it as a name for Christ. It has become a name of Jesus Christ. His earthly name, his human name is Jesus. Jehovah saves. Joshua. Yahweh saves. My name is Jeff. I think it means something to do with God is peace or something like that. His name is Jesus. It is actually proper to say he is Jesus the Christ. That's what he does. You? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what is this, the Christ? If you're taking notes, write this down. Christ is the Greek version, the Greek equivalent of this Hebrew word that we've heard often. That's why you'll hear me intermingle them together and teachers do this. It's the equivalent, the Greek equivalent, of the Hebrew word Messiah. Okay, so we have Christ in Greek, we have Messiah in Hebrew. What do these two words actually mean? They both point to this idea, the anointed one. The, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed. Not an anointed one. You're the anointed one. You're the anointed one. So what is this referring to, this Christ Messiah? So again, being brief but taking nothing for granted, let's just cover the basis. Watch. Israel, at that time and now, they're still doing this, Israel anticipated that God was going to send them this special, unique descendant of King David, who, when he comes, he's going to elevate and restore the land of Israel and the nation of Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews, back to their glory that they had under King David and his son Solomon. In fact, it's going to be far beyond that. When he comes, it's going to be great. He's going to restore the land when this great descendant son, this great son of King David, arrives. We're looking for Him. We're anticipating Him. But guys, let's biblically go further than that. Hang with me. What's this Christ? See, mankind's sin and our sin has separated us from God. But God loves us. And His love moved Him to pity us. Now, He can't just wipe away the sin without dealing with sin and say it's okay. He, his nature will not let Him have sin into heaven. But He loves us and so... His love drives him to have pity and it makes him take action. What is his action? I will send you, this is important, I'm going to send you a deliverer. But so that we would know who the deliverer is out of all the tens and tens and tens of billions of people. How will we know who the deliverer is? The Lord well in advance gives hundreds of specific prophecies hundreds of years in advance so that when the person who fulfills these prophecies arrives, we will know that is the Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer, the Savior. That's how we'll know. So God gives all of this. What Peter is saying, either on the move or around this campfire or walking in among the villages, wherever this was, his answer is, you're the one that all the prophecies are about. I know who you are. You're the fulfillment. You're the Deliverer. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one the prophecies are about. And he's convinced of this. Quick question, answer in your head. So if the Christ Messiah is the anointed one, what are they anointed with? And when was he anointed? Oh, you say, well, in the Old Testament, kings and priests were anointed with oil or some mixture of something. They're anointed with oil. Was this Messiah anointed with oil? Or was he anointed with what the oil signified? When did this happen? To complete your note, I don't think we've had this yet. Write this down. So he was anointed specially by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And Peter knows this. I know that you are the Christ. The Holy Spirit anointed you at your baptism and marked you out as the Christ, the Messiah. They are confused. We're not confused. I'm not confused. I know who you are. In fact, I'm going to offer to you, Peter is so convinced that Jesus is the Christ that in a couple of weeks, I think it's, I can't guarantee this, but as Easter is in two weeks, it's just going to fall where I'm at least going to get to springboard from the next paragraph following this one. You got your Bibles open? You got your Bibles open at home? Look over verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. He must be killed and on the third day be raised. Watch what Peter does. Peter's so convinced Jesus is the Christ, he takes Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen. Why is his zeal is making him confront Jesus? Jesus just made a prophecy. I'm getting ready to die. And Peter's like, No, 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 that's not going to happen. Why would you say that? Peter? Because you're the Christ. You're the anointed king. You're the great descendant of David. You're going to come and bring all this blessing. I don't know what you're waiting on, but it's going to happen any time now. This can I don't know what you're talking about here, but that's not happening. And the Lord says, get behind me, Satan. That tells us something. Peter doesn't have all the information, but he knows who he is. He knows who he's talking to. But that's not all. It's a dual confession. Ready? Ready? So Peter's confession is not only that you're, you are our long-expected Christ. It's more than that. You're our long-expected Christ, but you're more than we expected. Who am I? Well, you're the long-expected Christ, but you're a lot more than we expected. How can you be more than the expected Christ? You're the Son of God. You're the Son of God. He did not say, you are the Christ and a son of God. He did not say, you are the Christ and a son of one of the gods, like the Greeks and the Romans would say. Notice what what Peter is saying, there is a God. God has a son. His son's nature is in essence the same as his own nature, and you're him. I know who you are. You're the son of God. You're not of this world. Blessed are you, Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Peter, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not shown that to you, but my Father is in heaven. You are blessed because you understand this and you've surrendered to this. You are trusting this. You are the son of the one true God. Now, I've thought of it this way, and we're kind of at a huge advantage, but also because of our advantage, we can kind of take things for granted. And so we need to put ourselves back in this time period in this text. And for that sake, I want you to write this note down. What is now obvious to us was not obvious to them in that time. So this is why Peter's confession is so cutting edge and why the Lord is going to lay so much commendation on him. What's going to draw such response from the Lord? You're like, yeah, wow, that was pretty strong in verse 17. Blessed are you, flesh and blood, while you're blessed. Oh, no, that's just getting started in what the Lord's going to say to Peter. Peter. I mean, if you want to glance, I'm not going to read If you want to just glance at 18 and 19, you can kind of say, wow, the Lord is going to really lay it on thick. Why? What's so great about this confession? Write this down. Peter looked at the man, this man Jesus, this Jewish man, and calls him the unique son of God. And so what is so cutting edge about that is that Peter was saying this long before the idea that the Christ would also be the divine, unique Son of God had ever been thought by people. So people weren't already there. You say, well, the New Testament makes this pretty plain. Yeah, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. They're living in it. And so Peter, well ahead of the average person, is making this proclamation long before people understood that. Can we have that next note? I think that should be the next one. All right. So he calls him the son of God. Does that work? Is that kind of stuck? I didn't know. All right. No, that's right. Never mind. That's exactly right. My, my bad. I have, uh, when we were going over the exchange, I shared something on a Wednesday night that I have used multiple times. And so I'm using it again. But I'm confessing it's a weak illustration, so don't run with this 100%. And it's kind of corny, and it goes like this. So what do we mean when we call Jesus the Son of God and the ramifications? Because, Jeff, you just made a pretty big leap right there. Look at that sentence. Jeff, you just said the idea that the Christ would be God in the flesh. Where did you just make that leap? Some of you have heard me say this. Dogs, when dogs have offspring, they're called puppies. And puppies are a little miniature what? Dogs, when cats have offspring, they call, we call them kittens, and little kittens are little miniature what? Cats and giraffes have giraffes, and hippopotamuses have hippopotamuses. Human beings, when we have offspring, guess what? It's just the way it is. I have two of them. They're both human beings. We have two kids. They really are human beings, and they have the nature, the same nature as us. Now, the difference where that gets really weak is that God did not like produce some offspring in time and space because His Son is eternal just as much as Him. But the point to be made, if God has a son, then He would have the exact same nature as God, like giraffes. Have giraffes and hippopotamuses have hippopotamuses and dogs have dogs and cats have cats. Human beings have human beings. If God has a son and he does and we now know that he does, then the son has the exact same nature and so this is God in the flesh. Now here, in a moment we'll leave this section, but here's what makes this confession unique. Is this the first time anyone has said what Peter has said? Now think with me. This is not... Drawing so much commendation because he's the first to name these things. In fact, hold your spot here in Matthew 16. You got your Bible? Go to John chapter 1. You won't see these on the screen, so you're going to need to go to John chapter 1. I could say them to you or you can read them in front of you just as quickly. So let's notice, again, we're going into another gospel, back to chapter 1, so we're going back in time. This is before this scene that we're in in Matthew 16, well before that. This is a couple of years earlier. John the Baptist had just baptized Jesus and the the one who called John to baptize had told him, if you see in your Bibles there, verse 33, John the Baptist said, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Watch what John says. And I have seen, I saw this miracle in the Jordan River. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John's already said he's the Son of God. Flip down if you would and just look very close by. Verse 41, Andrew is one of John the Baptist's disciples. Andrew's Simon Peter's brother, so Andrew was in on it before Simon Peter was. So he, Andrew, comes to his brother, verse 41, he found his own brother Simon and said to him, I'm, again, I picture this, I, there's all these thousands of people at John the Baptist's baptisms, Jesus one of them, and word is spreading, and there's all this zeal and, and just energy in the crowd, And here comes Andrew, finally finds his brother. I picture him almost out of breath. We found the Messiah, which is being interpreted to Christ. That's for us, but his words, we found the Messiah. Come on. You've what? We found the Messiah. Oh, so this has already been said. Skip down, if you would, verse number 46. So Nathanael is being brought by a man named Philip. Nathaniel, these are two more of the disciples. So Philip goes and gets Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's going to come check Jesus out. He's not a disciple yet, but he's going to check him out. Nathaniel said to him, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Philip's like, "Man, you got to come. The Jesus of Nazareth is here, and he's he's the one. Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Philip said to him, "Come and see." Watch verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming, and he's apparently close enough to where he can hear what's, like he's getting up to the group that Jesus is in. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. And almost like, this is rare. (laughs) Guess what? we got a Jew here that has no deceit. And because he's so blunt and open and honest and not deceitful, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Translation, do you know me? How do you know me? How do you know anything about me? Jesus said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Something in that sentence triggers something in Nathanael's brain like, You saw me under the fig tree? Oh, I was there. I saw you. Remember when you were under the fig tree? Remember what was going on? I saw you then. Watch Nathanael's response. Verse 49, he answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So you say, Wait a minute, Jeff. It's like... This has happened before. Oh, absolutely. Now back to Matthew. Flip back to Matthew if you would. You're in chapter 16. But flip back a page or two to chapter 14. Remember chapter 14? Jesus has just healed. Not healed. He's just fed tens of thousands of people. This time it was the feeding of the... 5,000, I believe it was before. And in the night, Jesus is walking on the water. They're in this storm. They're in the boat. Jesus comes walking on the water. They see him. Peter asks. Jesus allows Peter to walk on the water. Jesus gets in the boat carrying Peter. The moment he gets in the boat, two things happen. The storm stops and they're immediately at shore, probably around 6 a.m. Look at verse 33 of chapter uh, 14. And those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. So the disciples have already said this. It won't take time, but Luke chapter 4 verse 41 says that as Jesus was casting out demons out of people, many demons were coming out of people, and the demons were saying that he's the Son of God. Recap. You ready? Watch. John the Baptist in John 1, Son of God. Andrew in chapter 1 also of John, we found the Messiah. Nathanael, you're the Son of God, the King of Israel. All the disciples in this boat, you are the Son of God. Demons over and over, you're the son of God. What makes what what Peter does in chapter 16 special? Why is this special? Why so much commendation from Jesus? Let's take down two thoughts. Number one. Peter's confession is great because his confession was not merely emotional. It was not merely emotional. I think this is why it's great. Y'all do understand that sometimes when we're emotional, we say things we don't always mean. And we say things we don't always understand. Now, as I say that more times than not, we're thinking, yeah, when I get angry, I say stupid stuff I don't really mean. But sometimes in our elation, we say things we don't really mean, we don't really understand. I watch a lot of sports, and so I'm going to use a sports analogy. There's a thing in sports called recency bias. You know what recency bias is? It's where you're held captive by the moment. Recency bias is the person who's been watching football for six years. Best player ever. Greatest of all Goat. That's the goat. Greatest of all time. And how long have you been watching football? Six years. Okay, you need to stand down. You might be right, but you're not one qualified to say who's the greatest of all time. You haven't seen very many players. This goes on all the time. That's the greatest team of all time. By the way, hint, it's usually the team you like. When they win, this is the greatest. I think we're the greatest of all time. He's the greatest. She's the greatest. That was the best championship game of all time. And how many championship games have you seen? Four. Okay, you know, this sport's been around like 93 years. But this is the greatest. Okay, we do this all the time. Let me borrow from Wiersbe writes the following. He says, how then did this confession differ from those that preceded it? Pay attention. He says, to begin with, Jesus explicitly asked for this confession. The others were just given. He's asking for this. So here's his point. Write this down. Wearsby writes, It was not an emotional response from people who had just seen a miracle. Not in your handout. Here's what he writes. It's the studied and sincere statement of a man who had been taught by God. Why is Peter's confession so great? He's not just... Saying this in a moment of emotion, shooting for the stars with his exclamation and his confession and his proclamation, like, let's go for the highest. Do you believe what I, I just saw a man that didn't have a hand, now he has a hand. I saw a guy who couldn't see, and now he sees. I saw a man that was dead. I saw, and now they're up and alive. I saw him keep breaking bread over and over and over. He's the, this isn't that. Hang with me. Do you remember John the the Baptist is in prison? He's been in prison for months and months. It's getting close to a year. The emotion is gone. He's had a lot of time to think. Hang with me. Something in what Jesus is doing and something in what Jesus is not doing is very confusing to John. And even John, as great as he is, has to send word. I need some confirmation. I need some reassurance. Are you the one that's to come or do we need to look for another? Here's why Peter's confession is so great. What Peter is saying is, I am not saying I understand everything that you do. You are confusing, and you're confusing on some things you don't do. I think if we could get into Peter's head, he would say, I don't know why you hadn't already kicked Rome out and just kicked those guys out of, out of Jerusalem and just taken over. I'm sure you're going to do it any day now, but all I know is this. I don't know everything you do, and I don't know why you don't do what you don't do, but I know who you are, and I will never look for another. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. God has a Son, and you're Him. I know that. This is coming from Peter's core. He's thought about it. He's concluded this. And he knows this to be true. So up to this point, I've done a lot of teaching. Can I transfer just for a moment from this passage? Because we're we're getting lost in the passage, which is great. I love to do that. And it's what's my job. Can we just pull out of the passage for a moment? How deep is your understanding of? And your trust of Jesus. How deep is your understanding and your trust of God? How deep is your understanding of God? How deep? When the emotion is gone, how deep is it? Let me get more specific. It's a long sentence. Go with every part. Do you have a high view of God's goodness? Yes. I know God is good. Do you have a high view of God's goodness, His faithfulness, His nearness, His sovereignty, His power, and His wisdom on a Sunday morning when the worship team is singing? And then we're looking at a passage that deals with God's faithfulness and nearness and power and wisdom and His love and His goodness and like, yes, I know it is true. But then you get out during the week and the emotion's gone and difficult times are, are hitting you and You don't believe it anymore. And when God is blessing you with something like, look what God did. I told you he's powerful. Look how faithful he is. He just gave you a blessing. I feel his presence. I know he's near. Okay. What about when you don't sense his presence? What about when you go days and days and you're thinking, if you're that powerful, why don't you show it? Do you still have the same core convictions deep in you where you can honestly say from your soul, I know God is good. I know he is faithful. I know he is trustworthy. I know he's close. Do you feel him close right now? Right now I don't. I know he is close. I know he's sovereign. I know he's wise. Doesn't look like he's, but he is wise. Someday I will see. Right now I don't see it, but I know he is wise. And I know he's powerful. We need to seek to reinforce these so much that they become a core part of our being so that in an unemotional time, even in a difficult time, someone could ask us, is he faithful? Oh, absolutely. Looks like you're in quite a struggle there. I am. He's still faithful. I know that. That's Peter. Second reason why this is such a great confession is because it was risky. Let me borrow from J.C. Ryle. It was risky. Ryle offers that it is a widely different thing. So watch her right out of the gate. Here we go. Widely different. So you have A and you have B, and there's a wide difference. We're getting ready to find out about ourselves in the coming years. Are we like Peter? Or are we pretenders? Jeff, what are you talking about? Ryle writes, quote, It is, wi- it is a widely different thing to believe in Christ's divine mission when we dwell in the midst of professing Christians. It's easy to believe in Christ in here today. It's popular. You're encouraged to do it. It's a widely different thing to believe in Christ's divine mission when we believe in the midst of professing Christians and to believe it when we dwell in the midst of hardened and unbelieving Jews. If you're taking notes, write down Ryle's quote. The glory of Peter's confession lies in this, that he made it when few were with Christ and many against him. I thought about these other times, these other confessions that we looked up in John and Matthew and and referred to in Luke, pretty much all of them Not a lot of people were against Christ at that time, and true, there were few that were for Christ, but the evidence was really swirling. But not a lot against him. Peter is saying this at a time where people are against him. Can I interject this? Will you confess Christ when it is not popular? Will you confess Christ when it costs you? We're in the minority already. We're in the minority, but there's such tradition in our country that it's still allowable But right now, they're canceling us out, what we believe. Will you keep saying the truth that you have said before, oh, he is this and this and this, and I know this, and this is what his word says. Will you keep confessing that when it is unpopular or when it has a consequence attached to it? In my heart of hearts right now, I don't care what they do. In my heart, I think, do you believe Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe Jesus is the Savior of the world? Absolutely. I cannot unthink that. I know it to be a fact. Do what you got to do. I can't stop knowing this. You should know this too. <laughs> Ryle continues. What made this confession special? He says, quote, He made it when the rulers of his own nation, the scribes and priests and Pharisees, were all opposed to his master. Watch, he switches gears. I didn't have the time to make it another point. Watch. He made it when our Lord was in the form of a servant. Without wealth. Without royal dignity without any visible mark of a king. To make such a confession at such a time required great faith. Let me promise you, sitting there, whether around that campfire, that theoretical campfire, or on the move, nothing about Jesus looked glamorous and majestic, and Peter saying, oh, I know you are. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're not from here. Blessed are you. I know I've hit you with a string of quotes, but I don't want to leave this second point right before we hit the third. I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression. And so I think MacArthur helps us. Would you write this down? He writes that the disciples, so we've got to get right perspective here. Oh, well, they've got it all figured out. No, they don't. That's going to be evident. He says the disciples did not at this time have a full comprehension of the Trinity, Peter's saying things he doesn't fully comprehend. They did not at this time have a full comprehension of the Trinity or even of the full nature and work of Christ. That's why he's going to buck the Lord in verse 22-23 coming up. They don't understand the Trinity. They don't, they don't understand the full nature and work of Christ. But here's his point. They knew Jesus was the truly the Christ. They don't understand the full nature of what that means, but they know He is truly the Christ and that He was truly divine, the Son of the living God. Translation, we don't understand all that what we're saying means, but we know you're the Christ and we know you're the Son of God. We know that. And they were right. Number three. I'll give you a moment because that's a lot longer note than I remember it being. Sorry about that. I'll go ahead and say this next thing just for time's sake so I can keep moving. You ready? Now we're going to focus on verse 17 to end the last point of our message. I want you to notice this morning two things here so it's kind of combined. The blessing and source of revelation. The blessing and source of revelation. Wednesday night, I had our Wednesday night group work in a team there at their table and write down definitions to three words. I didn't teach on it, just kind of drawing from their memory what they'd heard, and some would have an idea, some had no idea, and some had more ideas than others. I gave them three words. As it pertains to the Word of God, we're talking about revelation, inspiration, and illumination. So they wrote down their answers. Remember, revelation is this. Its core idea is to reveal something. So if there's a truth, which I often use like this, if this is a truth about God or a truth about Jesus, this man Jesus of Nazareth, if that's a truth and it is covered up, so that we don't see it, revelation is to uncover it. So it's you can it, it can be known. It has to be uncovered. So we're getting ready to study the blessing of revelation and the source of revelation. Can we go back to my imaginary theoretical campfire, fellas? Who do people say that I am? I hear John a lot. Yep, that's a big. I hear Elijah. Yep, they think you're the forerunner. Jeremiah, yeah, okay. Who do you say that I am? You? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in my mind, I picture all the other disciples looking at Peter and give it about a two count. You ready? You, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's, that's kind of where we're at. You say, Jeff, what's your point? I think they're looking to Jesus like, did he get it right? Did we pass? This hasn't really been fleshed out. Oh, you're the Christ, son of the living God. He knows. Yeah, what he said. Are we right? Blessed are you, Simon. France, my last quote I'll use, R.T. France writes the following. You see the word blessed? I went back and stole this from the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the same word. What does it mean? Catch this. France, who is a scholar in this language, writes that the word blessed means, quote, listen. Blessed does not state that a person feels happy, but that they are in a happy situation. One which other people ought also wish to share. What Jesus says to Peter is, You're in the enviable position. If other people have a clue, they would want to have what you have. If everybody sitting here this morning has a clue, an eternal perspective, Jesus Christ, who's the Son of God, who's come from eternity to earth, would say to you, You would be blessed. You want to know the desirable envious position? You should get to where you believe in your core what Peter believes in his core. You're blessed. Write this down. Peter is saying, Jesus is saying, Peter, you are fortunate. Oh, lucky. No, beyond lucky. You're fortunate and you should be happy, Peter. Why? You have the good life. Peter, you have the good isn't this guy going to be crucified upside down? Doesn't look like the good life. Isn't he going to be persecuted? Isn't he going to be hated? Isn't he going to live as a poor person? Isn't he, isn't he living as a poor person now? Oh, absolutely. But you are so blessed. Eternity is going to tell just how blessed this. Peter, you have the good life. You should be happy. You're fortunate. You're enviable. Why is he blessed? Well, here's the rest of the story. Peter, you're blessed because you understand truth about me. You're blessed because you trust that truth about me. You're blessed because you confess the truth about me. And you're blessed because you've surrendered your whole life to me because of the truth that you understand and trust and confess. You are blessed. Again, when you see Peter, you'll know he's blessed. You'll know he's fortunate. Verse 17 gets into that topic and my time will not allow me to go into it deeply but I am not going to dodge it. There it is. We don't have to go too long but it comes up, doesn't it? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him. Notice the exclamation point. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Why is he blessed? For fle- Here's why he's not blessed. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven. You're blessed. Why? Because you had this information. Where did you get it? Not from flesh and blood revealing it to him, but from his Father who is in heaven. Did you notice? Two things. Watch. You just called me the Son of God? Check. You're right. Because what does Jesus do immediately? He calls my Father in heaven. Hey, you boys' father's from here. Your father's name's John, Jonah. You boys, your father's name's Zebedee. Lives right down there 25 miles away and running the fishing business as we speak. And your father's name is that and yours is that and that. Okay, my father's not from this world. My father's in heaven. You're right, Jonah. I am the son of God. But unmistakably, we can't dodge this that's in verse 17. We can't help but notice it. Listen, the complete sovereignty of God in matters of revelation. God is sovereign in matters of revelation. God's in complete control of Revelation. I'm going to read mostly in my last page or so of notes. But the truth is strong enough in this that if you'll listen you don't need me animating it out. Many people saw and heard the same miracles and sermons of Jesus that Peter had. Yet he realized Vital information when others did not. Why? Jesus says, here's why it didn't happen. He gets it. They all see the same thing. They all hear the same thing. Peter may have saw more of it. I'm telling you, there's tens of thousands of people. Jesus has ministered to ten, hundreds of thousands of people. He fed 20, 25,000 on one occasion. Fed, fed 10, 15,000 on another occasion. Tens of thousands and... Again, hundreds of thousands of people in in these two and a half years have been affected by the ministry of Jesus. Many have seen all the same things that Peter has seen. But he realizes vital information, and the rest don't. Why? Flesh and blood, if you're taking notes, means no other human being showed this to Peter. No one, hey, Peter, come here. Hot take. What? He's the Christ. What? And he's the Son of God. Pass it on. Okay, thanks, man. That's not how it happened. Flesh and blood also means Peter did not figure this out on his own. Well, Peter's a smart guy. He's probably smarter than the other hundreds of thousands of people. Not how it happened. So again, to complete our note, as you see, the only reason Peter has the good life is because God the Father Willed it to be so. God the Father caused Peter to have the good life. Peter, you're blessed because flesh and blood hasn't shown this to you. My Father has shown it to you. He's revealed this to you. The revelation has come to you. You've not figured out what others have missed. God has given you, dare we say, what others have not been given. And we hear that and we're like, hey, hey, taint. Time, time out Jeff and if you're new here and never thought about this you may start putting two and two together and start thinking okay hold on know what I, I don't know that I like what that's implying well you need to go home and think about it and you need to go home and read the Bible and let the Bible say what it says let's finish by going over to John look at John 1 I'm going to give you three quick passages We'll wrap up talking about them and the ramifications. Look at John 1. I'm going to string these together quickly. John chapter 1, verse 11. So there's God and there's mankind. Verse 11 means He came, He, God, the Word. We know He's the Son of God. He came to his own. You know what that means? God became a human being and he came down to human beings. But he specifically became a Jewish man and came to literally the Jews. Look at verse 11 because in verse 11 we're going to see rejection. Look at it. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So there's rejection. That's the vast majority of people do not receive Jesus. But verse 12 gives another group of people. But to all who did receive him. Well, they do earn him. No, who did receive him, who believed in his name. How did they receive him? By believing in his name, he gave the right to become. Note that word. They're not born children of God. You weren't born children of God. You're allowed to become children of God. How? By receiving Christ, by believing in his name. So verse 11 is rejection. Verse 12 is this acceptance. Why does one happen and the other happens a different way. Verse 13, who were born, these are the people who become children of God. They're born physically. John chapter 3, Jesus is going to tell us this idea in verse 13 here. It means to be born again. You're born physically, but you have to be born again spiritually. How does that happen? Verse 13, who were born? Not of blood. Jews, listen. We're Abraham's kids. Not going to work for you. You better repent of thinking that way. You're not born again spiritually of blood, nor of the will. This is the Bible. This is Jeff. Nor of the will of the flesh. I'll get saved when I'm good and ready. No, you will not. You will not get saved when you're good and ready. The Bible says that we're born not of blood. I'm a Bartlett, I'll have you. No, we're good people. Yeah, you know, we're all born in sin on our way to hell. That's not going to work. Not born of the will of the flesh. I'll do it when I'm... Nope. Nor of the will of man. You ever wanted to do that? I've wanted to do this. You go, get in that room, shut that door. We're not leaving till you hear the gospel and receive it. Do you understand? You will get saved today. If it's the last thing, I, that will not work. Then how does it happen? Of God. It's not by the will of man. It's not by the will of the flesh. It's not how good you are in your family and your name. Flip over, if you would, chapter 6. I told you there was three. Watch chapter 6. In a minute, you'll see something on the screen. Actually, can we pull that back? Well, that's fine. It's fine. Leave it up. Look at verse 35 in advance. You need your Bible open here. Look at verse 35, John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He's talking about the spiritual life giver. I give you come to me. I'm, I'm spiritual bread that gives spiritual life. I am the bread of life. Watch what he says. Whoever comes to me, you know what he's implying? You'd, you better come to me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What is he saying? You really get saved by me? You're not going to look for all the other religions to see which one is right. You'll stop looking. I got it. I don't look for other religions. If I ever read anything about other religions, just to know... So I can converse with someone or have some idea about it. I'm not searching to join it. Gee, this is true in my life. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's skip down to verse 37. So you must come to me. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Oh, some are going to come to him. Yes. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And what happens to those people? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. i save them every time. Everybody that comes to me, I always save them. If they come and ask me to save them and believe me, receive me by believing in my name, John 113, 1.12, I always save them. If they'll come, are any going to come? Yeah, the ones that the Father gave me will come. Now look down at verse 44. Do you catch it? Verse 35, you must come to me. Verse 37, some will come to me. Verse 44, no one can come to me. No one can come to You must come to me, Jesus says. Verse 44. Oh, by the way, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. You have to come to Jesus. You will not come to Jesus unless the Father draws you, drags you. Last spot is Romans 9. Flip over there. We'll just touch on it. Somebody's getting nervous already because I just said that passage. No, Jeff, don't do the Romans 9. Anywhere but Romans 9. <laughs> Somebody right now may be thinking, now hang on, Peter's blessed because he was shown some things of the Father that others were not shown. He comes to his own people, they reject him. Some do believe and receive, and they're given the right, the power, the authority to become children of God, not by blood. They just didn't decide to do it, and no one else decided for them they'll do it. It's of God. You must come to me, but you will not come to me unless the Father, and right about now you may be thinking, hang on, this doesn't sound right. This sounds like God is very unfair. In verse 14, reading our minds, and by the way, you may say, Jeff's jumping in the middle of a passage, well, just look at the verse in front of verse 14. If you think 14's offensive, it's not on the screen. The Bible says, as it is written, God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here's our final text. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Oh, you whoa, whoa, can't do that. If this is true, what's implied in Matthew 16 and John 1 and John 6, God can't do that, says you. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, if it's not clear enough yet, verse 16, is crystal clear. I don't know how anyone can get around this. I didn't like this doctrine when I I didn't like it. And I ran into that. And it's like, I want to explain it away. And then it just, (laughs) Jeff, you going to believe the word of God or not? So then it depends not on human will or exertion. I'm going to try real hard and be really righteous. It's too late. You've blown it. What's it depending on? It is obviously talking about salvation in this text. Just read the rest of it and you'll really get blown away. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So I just said I'm not going into it a lot other than to say this. There's a reason it's called mercy and grace. You understand? Mercy means that you're not going to get... Say it louder. Mercy starts with a J. Mercy means you're not going to get justice. The baseline, the baseline is justice. We deserve, you can go demand justice. Justice for all of us means eternity in hell. The baseline is we all deserve eternity in hell. If God on his part decides, hey Moses... I can have mercy on whoever I choose to have mercy, and I can give compassion on whomever whomever I choose to have compassion. What this all means is God doesn't have to do this. We think he has to do it. No, he doesn't have to do it. Take your next to the last note, and I'm going very quickly now. Write this down. Because I always want to include this when I'm speaking on this subject. Peter, you're blessed because the Father has shown you something. Don't lose this. Salvation cannot be obtained apart from a person, you, receiving it by trusting in the person and work of Jesus. It cannot be obtained. So I'm here to tell you very clearly you cannot be saved. Unless you trust and depend, put your faith in Jesus, and thereby receive the salvation. You said, what do you mean like receive? Like don't move a muscle. Hear the words and the promises of God. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you will hear that and believe it and receive it, then you're saved. You will not be saved unless you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't be saved unless you do that. You must do that. If you've never done that, block me out. Bring the Lord into your sphere of of awareness. Start talking to Him. Confess your sins and say, I just heard John 3.16 in a clear way. I've never heard it before. I am receiving Jesus as my Savior. I'm putting my trust in Him right now. I'm taking it. You can't be saved without it. But, to complete the note, When that happens, it's always God's work initiated at every turn by him. You have to trust Jesus or you will not get saved. If you have trusted Jesus, it was God's work at every turn who initiated that whole thing. I'm going back to reading because I'm looking at that clock. Somebody keeps bumping it up. So let me read. I'm going to give you a second to write because I want you to hear this. Peter's blessed. We cannot miss the complete sovereignty of God in matters of revelation, God is sovereign over that. So here's my reading genuine, heartfelt confessions like Peter's, that result in salvation only occurred in Jesus' day when people looked at and listened to the same Jesus that others saw and heard. But they, the ones who have these heartfelt, genuine confessions that lead to salvation, Everybody saw the same and heard the same Jesus, but these saw and heard Him with a supernatural accompaniment of special, individual revelation that only God can give. Everybody heard and saw the same Jesus, but it has to be a special individual. Individual, revelation, that only God gives. And oh, by the way, it's the same ever since then. You say, we all have to see the same Jesus? Well, we don't see him physically. Let me read this. The only way we can give a genuine, heartfelt confession of Jesus that saves us is when we look and listen to the same Bible that others do. But we see it and hear it with a supernatural accompaniment of special individual revelation that only God gives. And what does this revelation and accompaniment of special illumination do for us? It causes us, when we're reading the Bible and when we're hearing the teaching and the preaching, He literally comes to us individually, specially. It causes us to see Jesus as divine, glorious, and worthy and all-powerful, and so loving, he really will save me. And he's so holy, he has enough holiness, he can give me his holiness. He's so powerful, he can save me from all of my sins. Yes, it's coming home to me. Everybody else is sitting there going, we almost died. But somebody watching online or sitting here this morning is going, wait. And God's going, today's your day. Hey, I'm talking to you. He's the worthy Lord. I see Him as worthy. He is divine. He is glorious. I receive Him. When did that happen in your life? When did that happen? Spiritual truth that is vital and crucial for eternal life can be right in front of us. It can be in your lap. It can be in your lap. Yet despite our level of intelligence... We will not and cannot perceive it. There it sits. It's on the screen. You'll never perceive it unless God gives you the ability to perceive it. When did that happen for you? In your heart of hearts, I'm almost done. In your heart of hearts, if Jesus were to pull you face to face and say, Who do you say that I am? Yeah, when you see him at the judgment, you'll know... What about now by faith? Who do you say that can you in your core, I mean in your deep core, when all the emotions gone and when the preacher isn't screaming and yelling anymore and it's just you and him, can you in your heart say, I know you're the Christ. I know you're the one that all the Old Testament promises are about. I know that you're the son of God. I don't know all that that means, but I know that you are the only son of God by nature and that makes you God in the flesh. Can you honestly in your course say, I know that you are not just a Savior. You are my Savior. You're not just the Lord. You are my Lord. I know. That you are my peace. You are my access to the Father. I don't know this secondhand. I have experienced this. He knows your heart. Can you say that truthfully? Is all your information about him secondhand from taking notes and... Being a church attender for a long time? Or can you say, I have a personal relationship with the Lord, and it's because it started at this time? Your last note is the following. If those describe you, that's your deep view of Jesus, that's your deep trust of Jesus, you have the good life. Good news, you have the good life. You have it now, you have it in the eternity. Every spiritual truth we ever obtain is revealed to us by God. Now here's the key. He often uses human beings as his agents, his conduit. But ultimately, God convinces us of his truth. Let me say it again. He uses human beings, but God convinces us of his truth. Who were the human agents in your life? Mine, 1979, I got saved. My parents laid a foundation. God used them as conduit. But boy, that particular week, mainly Ed Yeoman. Later on, on that Wednesday night, my grandfather, Ernest Bartlett, was used. Also during that week, my uncle, Louis Bartlett, was used. Finally, at an altar again, I think I was already saved before I got down there. I was on that side. I went down to this side. A young man named Doug Wright was used as a human conduit. But make no mistake about it, all those names that I just gave you, those were ambassadors through whom God ultimately was appealing to my will to my mind, to my whole life. He used Ed Yeoman. God was speaking. But God drugged me through Ed Yeoman's teaching of the Word of God that helped me to see Jesus. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that He is? Answer that in your mind. Let's not check out I'll pray in a moment. Who is Jesus to you? How deeply do you know that? How deeply? Is it secondhand, or can you say, I know from experience? Jeff, in the non emotional times, my theology on Christ is this and this and this, and my experience with him backs it up. When did that happen? When did God reveal and uncover the truth about his son to you? if you're not able to relate if you're sitting there thinking hang on preacher I can't remember your name it's not important that's right but if you're sitting there right now saying hang on I I, I don't know that I've ever had a time like that but I know this if this is you if this is one person ladies and gentlemen this is worth us taking a moment I know I've gone long, but if one person online or in this room right now, if this is you, in your heart you're saying, I'm, I'm a, my, my heart is about to leap out of my chest. I am so scared. I'm convicted of my sin. I'm afraid of where my eternity is. But I, I, I see Jesus in what's been preached today, and he sounds trustworthy and believable and sufficient. What exactly do I have to do to get this salvation because I'm ready to do it right now? Well, good. Good. You should do this right now. God is real. He's right in front of your face. He hears everything that you're thinking. He knows your next thought. You've not thought it yet. He knows everything. So you might as well just talk to Him honestly from your soul and your spirit. So do this. Confess to Him. Agree with what His Holy Spirit has said to you. He says you're a sinner. So go ahead and say God you're right I am a sinner I have broken your laws I've sinned against you I've rejected you but now tell him this you still hear the Holy Spirit that same Holy Spirit is saying but Jesus died on a cross and it was enough to pay for all your sins but you have to not listen not only in your head But with your whole being, rest in him. Take him at his word. You almost word it like this to God. You just talk to the Lord right now. God, I don't know why you died in my place. Especially since I was your enemy. I don't know why you died. But I believe you did. And I believe Jesus' death is enough to take away all my sins. And so I, would you do this? Talk to the Father right now. God, I ask you to save me. Forgive me of my sins. I receive. Do this. Talk to him. Tell him right now and mean it. God, I right now receive Jesus' death for me. I receive the forgiveness of my sins. I receive it. I'm trusting you. I'm not going to try to be good enough to help him. I receive his death in my place. I take it right now. I take your salvation. Many of you are already Christians. If that's you, could you just do this real quick? Just do it right now. Bring God into your sphere of awareness. First off, acknowledge that the revelation of that day that you put your trust in Christ was a gift. It was a gift. So tell Him, thank you. You say, I thanked Him this morning. Thank Him right now. God, just reading this passage about Peter just reminds me, You did something I could never do for myself. You gave me the light to see Christ. You showed me the truth. I'm not better than anybody else. I'm not smarter than anybody else. Just thank Him for it. And then just before we pray... Since we know that God uses human beings as His conduit where He speaks to people, Grace View, would you let yourself be used this week, this week, to talk to someone? If so, we had a song earlier called Available. it's a brand new song. I'd never heard it. Would you just finish this morning by saying, God, you used somebody in my life and you know their name. I'd like to be that person in somebody's life. And so, Lord, I'm available. Use me as your conduit, your ambassador this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I commit it to your care. Lord, I thank you that from my soul and my spirit, I sure didn't understand it then. I know a little more now, Lord, but I've got a long way to go. But I join Peter in confessing that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the living God, God in the flesh, baptized by the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, specially anointed to be my Deliverer and my Lord. So, Lord, would you let me be used by you to speak your Word and these, my brothers and sisters as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you need any help, if anyone, like, hey, I need help. And just understanding, I, I, I think I receive the Lord or I need to receive the Lord as my Savior. Feel free to talk to me. I'll be up here and available or back there.